Hi everybody and welcome back to part two of a natural approach to iron deficiency, nourishing the sea of blood. Now we're going to have a look at iron testing, supplementation and dietary intake. Enjoy. Nice to have you here. Hi, I'm Sue Lindsay and this is the Well Woman podcast. I've worked with countless women and teenage girls over the years as a natural women's health clinician. And I know how hard it can be to get the help you need to overcome hormonal imbalance, infertility, and perimenopausal symptoms. I bring together my expertise in natural medicine and nutrition with insights from experts in the field of women's wellness to help you get the information you need to make a real difference to your health. This truly unique podcast combines the wisdom of the East with the clinical know-how of modern naturopathy, offering a holistic approach to empower and inspire women just like you on the path to optimized health. I'm your trusted guide as you navigate your hormone healing journey, giving you support, accountability, and guidance along the way. Thanks for listening in, and don't forget to follow or subscribe. It's time to nourish you with Well Woman. So now let's talk about iron testing, because ideally you do want to know what your levels are before you try to increase them. Fatigue, by the way, that's actually also a sign of iron overload. So just make sure that you know either way. Um, I always get my clients iron tested if they present with some of the more obvious symptoms. So for all of you listeners, here they are. If these come up in the initial consultation when I'm talking with my clients, I will be either sending them for testing to the medical practitioner, or if it's easier, I prescribe the iron panel test directly. It's, um, it's great. It only costs about $35. And then you've got processing and post, but it's easy. So the initial signal symptom is TAT, T-A-T-T. So that means you're tired all the time. That's the one standout symptom that I'm screening for. And that's when I'll say, okay, if there's a lot of other signs of iron deficiency that seem to be emerging, we definitely need to get this tested. So TAT is like fatigue that's having a noticeable impact on your daily life. And you just find yourself not doing things that you would normally do. So you might normally go out, socialize. You might normally spend a little bit extra time working on something through the day. You might normally take the dog for a walk or go out to the gym and do some, you know, resistance training or whatever it is that you like to do. And then you find that you're just not doing that as frequently as you used to. It's always good to track your symptoms. Now, if you want a free symptom tracker, by the way, jump onto my website because I have one that you can download. With things like this, you know, for instance, where you're tracking how frequently you exercise or if you're tracking how severe the fatigue feels, it just helps you to look back in time and remember and reflect on where your body's been so that you get more of an informed idea about whether your fatigue levels are gradually increasing or whether your exercise levels are gradually reducing, that sort of thing. So go onto the homepage, herbalwell.com.au. That's H-E-R-B-A-L-W-E-L-L.com.au. And scroll down to the bottom, there's some resources there. You can download the symptom tracker. The second symptom I usually can see in consultations when I'm doing blood pressure readings and adrenal assessments. And it's when my clients get up quickly and they say, you know, I just need a moment. I'm a bit dizzy or, you know, I'll, I'll say, can you see black spots and that sort of thing. 
and it's a lightheaded feeling. So that can be indicative of low iron. That's number two. And number three is a little bit easier to spot. Pale skin, pallor under the eyes. So this is the one where you you just gently pull your lower eyelid down and you observe the color of the inner skin there that's sitting between your lower lid and your eyeball. And if it's really pale, that can be a sign of low iron too. And I say can be because you always want to consider other possibilities. It's part of, I guess, being a clinician and being observant as well. So you're on this path where you're gathering all the evidence and data that you can that would support a low iron diagnosis while you're also remaining open to other differentials along the way. And apart from these three symptoms, I ask about things like the cold hands and the cold feet. Um, general, these are general signs of blood deficiency. I ask about circulation. You know, so they're the main signs. And whenever I see them, we go and we get that iron study done. A typical iron study or iron panel can reveal how healthy your iron levels are. And it includes a number of elements. So I'm going to go through those elements now and just give you a rundown on what they are. And also, what are the levels that you would expect to see in each of those? So your iron panel or iron study will include your total iron, which is the amount of iron in your circulation, giving you a good idea of iron availability in your body. And it's a great place to start when looking at your iron, but just know that it isn't considered diagnostic. We will look more at ferritin for that in a minute. Several markers are included in a standard iron study, and they'll be listed with their values. And then you'll also see their reference ranges there as well, which all the labs will give you because you need those reference ranges to see how your levels compare with the majority of the population. And by the way, you know, it's also worth thinking about those reference ranges as sometimes being a little bit too generalized. If I have petite clients or larger bodybuild clients, I will consider that when looking at the reference ranges. I'll also consider that if a large proportion of Australians are trending towards iron deficiency, then the reference ranges are going to be changed by those changing figures. And so an average of the population may actually end up giving me a slightly skewed result. So we'll just always think about that. And if you are a little bit more in a different body type, then that can also influence you know, whether you're, you should be sitting at the lower or higher ends of those reference ranges. That's something you can discuss with your therapist or practitioner. So reference ranges on iron panels, they differ between the labs. There's a bit of variation out there. You, if you do happen to have iron results sitting in front of you, you can look at those to see where you're really placed according to the reference ranges given to you. And use the information that I'm giving you here more as a general guide. It's not necessarily going to match the test that you've had done. If we look at the reference ranges from New South Wales Health, between 8 and 32 micromoles per litre of total iron is considered normal. This is fairly close to the Australian clinical labs, which gives a lower limit of 10 and a higher limit of 30. So that's 8 to 32 in one, 10 to 30 in another. So sit between these and you have normal iron levels. If your iron levels are sitting lower than 10, you definitely want to eat and supplement to get more iron into your bloodstream. The Iron Deficiency Experts Group of Australia, they recommend going by the ranges on your lab results. And if the serum iron, sometimes just called iron, is low or trending towards low, then just assume that you haven't got enough iron. 
you're not necessarily anemic at this stage, but you want to focus on supplementation to lift your levels. You also want to prevent anemia and you want to have a blood nourishing diet. And if the iron level is sitting well in the normal range, uh, maybe even a little bit too high, then there are a couple things here just to bear in mind. You may have already been on iron supplements, so they may be increasing your iron and you don't want to do that forever. And also check for iron overload. So iron binds to a transporter protein called transferrin, and you'll see this on your blood results too. So think of transferrin as a type of shuttle bus. It's moving through your body, it's picking up iron, and it travels in the bloodstream, and it sends that iron through your body. It's basically how iron reaches your tissues and cells. It grabs a ride on the shuttle bus called transferrin. And transferrin will correlate with another marker called the TIBC. So this stands for the total iron binding capacity. TIBC is partly based on the transferrin number, so often they will reflect each other. New South Wales health guidelines suggest that the transferrin levels are ideally between 1.8 and 3.5. Again, depends on your pathology lab. To give you another range, clinical labs will use a lower limit of 2.1 and upper limit of 3.8, so slightly higher. So with one, you've got between 1.8 and 3.5 for transferrin, and with the other between 2.1 and 3.8. I think it's um, better actually just to look at the reference ranges that you have, um, but just to get some extra ideas here. Maybe you haven't had your iron tested yet. Now also note that in iron deficiency, you would expect the transferrin to either be normal or high. And what's happening if the transferrin levels are increasing and becoming elevated is that your body is feeling like it just doesn't get enough iron. So the best way to get more iron is to get more transferrin circulating through the bloodstream to pick the iron up. So you will see low iron levels and high transferrin levels, but you might also see low iron levels and normal transferrin levels. So that's also possible. And it's just reflecting the body's desire to get more iron into tissues and cells. So both the transferrin and also the total iron binding capacity, they may be normal, they may be elevated. They're not really likely to be low. So if you're seeing low transferrin and low TIBC, then you've probably gone the other way. There's too much iron. And the body's saying, hold on, hold on, let's not send out too much transferrin because we don't want to pick up any more iron. So that's the other direction it can go in. So iron is binding to this transferrin and then it actually saturates the transferrin. Now this is another marker that you want to look at in your results and it's called the transferrin saturation level. And it tells you how much of the transferrin in your bloodstream is actually filled with or saturated with iron and it's given as a percentage. So normally you would expect the saturation level to sit somewhere between 20 to 45%. Given that if you're iron deficient, then your levels of iron are already lacking. Therefore, it's likely that there's not enough iron to be able to saturate that transferrin. So you'll see low normal or low transferrin saturation in iron deficiency. And if you see low saturation together with high transferrin levels and also high TIBC, then you're moving in the direction of anemia. Possibly this is anemia. Finally, the most important one, the ferritin level, tells you how much iron you have in storage. Because while 60 to 70% of your iron 
is happily hitchhiking around your body in red blood cells. Around 30% of it is sitting in storage in liver cells called hepatocytes, hepato referring to the liver. And the remaining 10% or so, they get used in enzymes or cytochromes. If your ferritin level now is low, you can assume that iron is deficient in all of your tissues. Normal ferritin is over 30 micrograms per liter, although naturopaths like it higher, say around 80. If you're sitting around 30, you're most likely already exhibiting iron deficiency signs. One of the more frequent experiences I'll have in clinic is women who are testing in that normal range on their iron study. So they go in and they're told, okay, so your ferritin is somewhere between you know, 10 to 30 micrograms per liter. So you're good, off you go. So they go to their medical practitioner for help with things like fatigue, but they end up walking away being told that their iron is fine. So it's not the iron, you know, what else could it be? Maybe get some more rest, things like that. The problem is that we're very geared towards meeting those minimum requirements where in actual fact, when you move to a health-oriented system like naturopathy, then you're working on optimal health. So you're looking at trying to get optimal iron levels and that's what you want to strive for. And it's really no fun for the woman either because that sort of experience will negate her symptoms and it will make her feel like she you know, is feeling lethargic and foggy all the time, but there's nothing anyone can do about it. And the problem is that she's not meeting optimal levels. So the optimal ferritin for women is 60 to 140 micrograms per liter. And one of the other labs I used to use for testing their reference range for normal ferritin for a woman between 15 to 50 years old is anywhere up to 200 micrograms per liter. If you're wondering about younger girls for the teens, so let's look at girls up to say 15 years old, and it's actually the same for boys in that age group. The reference range is somewhere between 20 to 140 micrograms per liter. So another thing to consider about ferritin levels is, you know, if they're high, then don't rule out things like chronic inflammation, liver inflammation, even a condition called hemochromatosis where you overstore iron. So that's an important thing. You just need to rule that out just in case the ferritin level is showing as quite elevated. And because, in, as I said before, in that case, you'll still get the fatigue, so it can be quite confusing. So just keep an eye on really high ferritin levels. Then if we look at the iron deficiency experts group in Australia, we see the levels of ferritin that are considered diagnostic for anemia in children is anything under 10, uh, 10 to 12 micrograms per liter and below 15 micrograms for adults. And it's really, really common to see these sorts of numbers, to be honest, for the number of times that I've had these iron studies run or seen results that my clients have brought in, it's really, really common to see these low numbers. And for adults, uh, according to the iron deficiency expert group, the adult level is anything under 100 micrograms per liter. Um, so they're thinking anemia is unlikely in that case because under 100 micrograms per liter, is, uh, it's okay. But functional iron deficiency may still actually be present. So if you're feeling tired and so on, then there's an, there's an iron deficient effect going on in your body, even if you haven't been deemed anemic. It's not always as clear cut as this. So I recommend that you don't really use this podcast to diagnose yourself as anemic or iron deficient. Always get a clinician to do that because also if there is chronic inflammation or an acute infection, or if you've got 
elevated inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein or ESR, then it's very likely that your ferritin levels are testing as normal or high because of that. So iron deficiency would, in that case, still need to be investigated. Also in iron deficiency, one last thing, and anemia, your hemoglobin levels, now these are written as HB or HGB, they will also be low. So they will be showing as anything below 120 grams per litre. As a summary then, here's what you can expect to see in general iron deficiency. Low total iron, a high or normal transferrin level. Remember transferrin is the transporter molecule. Same with the total iron binding capacity, the TIBC, normal or high. Saturation, however, will be low and the ferritin level will also be likely to be low. Now, there's another marker that's giving us some more insights into iron status, and it's a peptide molecule, which is produced mainly by your liver cells, and it's called hepcidin or hepcidin. So hepcidin was discovered over two decades ago. It took us a while to, to learn from this discovery, but Partly why it's making waves in health science these days is because it's actually offering us an explanation to why some of us will be iron supplementing and not getting much benefit from it. And it's also possibly going to become another diagnostic tool for iron deficiency. And that's always good because even though we have several blood-based markers that we use to assess iron status, uh, they all have some limitations. So the role of hepcidin is actually to maintain your iron balance or your iron homeostasis in your body. It's regulating iron absorption and it is regulating the mobilization of iron from your body stores. Hepcidin works with what we call a negative feedback mechanism in the body. So what this means is that whatever the levels of hepcidin that you're releasing, it's really only in response to the perceived levels of iron that your body is detecting. If iron levels, for example, start to surge all of a sudden, then you will go ahead and make quite a bit of hepcidin to get that back under control and stop your body from overabsorbing too much iron. And if iron levels are low, then hepcidin will also remain low. It's just a way that your body keeps things in balance by monitoring specific substances like iron. It's not really working to increase your iron absorption. It's actually trying to inhibit it in case you take too much or you get too much in your body. There are cells inside your body called enterocytes. These are found in your gut and macrophages from your immune system. They also play a role in releasing some iron into the plasma and hepcidin can prevent them from doing this as well at times. So this prevention of iron absorption and iron release it's just a protective mechanism. You know, your body is detecting an influx of iron that just seems too high and too unreal and too unnatural and potentially damaging to your body and oxidative to your body. Because you know, if you get too much iron, it becomes really oxidative. And the absorption of that iron needs to be suppressed to prevent you from suffering from iron overload. And studies are showing that hepcidin can reliably detect iron deficiency anemia in various populations, and high blood hepcidin levels are known to prevent or slow down the intestinal absorption of iron, as well as the iron recycling that we rely on for some extra iron. On the other hand, low levels of hepcidin will stimulate iron supply to the bone marrow that will help you to manufacture hemoglobin, and it becomes part of that process of making blood, making red blood cells and so on. 
Now, taking iron supplements orally, which contain 60 milligrams of iron or higher, has been shown to increase those hepcidin levels in your blood. So knowing what we do know now about this protective and this absorption suppressing mechanism of hepcidin, the standard daily dosing recommendations with iron supplements just does not apply anymore. And ideally, we want to take our iron supplements every second day, maybe even every week. At least we don't take them daily, which was the previous guidelines. And you might even see that daily guideline, you know, every now and then. Also, giving iron in lower doses is better and avoiding taking multiple doses in a day. So avoid a twice daily dosing uh, sort of regimen. Just take the one dose and then wait a couple of days or more until your next dose. And these strategies and studies, they're just producing better iron absorption outcomes with supplements. As I mentioned before, the main cause of iron deficiency in Australia is inadequate iron intake in the diet. So let's have a look at how you can optimize your iron stores from foods. So here's what's probably happening for you right now. I'm just assuming this, I could be totally off, but I'm assuming that if you're eating a typical Western diet, you're going to be taking in somewhere between 15 to 20 milligrams of iron in your daily diet. Only 10% of this um, may be meat derived. So that's the heme type, which is more easily absorbed. And the other 90% might be from plant-based sources. So this food comes into your body. It's moving down through your stomach. Hopefully at that point, it's being acted upon by a healthy amount of stomach acids, which help to release the iron out of the meat, detach it from the meat. Of course, that's going to make it easier for you to absorb. And then the iron and food will be making its way down to your duodenum where, get ready for this, only 10% of the iron that you consumed is going to be absorbed, 10%. So after all of this, you took in the daily recommended intake of iron and you absorbed only a fraction of it, 1.5 to 2 milligrams on, on average. This is why if you're already iron deficient, diet just is not going to be enough to get your levels back up. Unless you can down a kilo of red meat in one day, that is, you know, that's how much you would need to eat to meet your iron requirements. Um, or a kilo of chickweed, uh, sorry, a, a kilo of cooked uh, chickpeas. Um, chickweed would be good as well, though, actually, because chickweed will help you absorb the iron. So it's sounding a little bit like a blood diet so far, and I'm pretty sure this is very non-enticing for low meat eaters, vegetarians, so I totally understand. Now, because it's intestinal lining cells, the enterocytes that are absorbing the iron for you, if you further have an issue with your gut lining or a condition like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or CFO, which is where fungal overgrowth is the problem, then your ability to absorb iron is already compromised. So take that 1.5 to 2 milligram digit and reduce it even further. Also, further to this, you may be ingesting some nutritional enhancers for iron absorption. Well done. Like ascorbic acid, vitamin C, that's where the chickweed comes in. So yes, a kilo of chickweed <laughs> wouldn't go astray. Um, folic acid, citric acid, peptides rich in the cysteine, amino acid, vitamin A, all of these can help you to absorb your iron. You might also be eating foods like meat, fish, poultry. They can sometimes enhance iron absorption. Um, so some of those uh, that I mentioned before that might be a problem, these are called iron absorption inhibitors. Things like coffee, tea, there are several herbal drinks here that might be problematic as well. You also might be taking your iron without supplements that are inhibiting its absorptions. 
So to give you an idea of some of the substances that can inhibit your iron absorption, we've got polyphenols, which are found in a lot of herbs and, and fruits and foods, oxalates, which are found in a lot of vegetables, tannins, which is found in tea. All of these things can reduce your iron absorption. Black tea, for example, is very rich in tannins. So if you drink a lot of tea, that could be one cause of low iron or low ferritin. So we've got that 1.5 to 2 milligrams a day. We're already wondering, oh gosh, am I even getting that? And then you add in that you're a menstruating woman and you may be losing your iron daily throughout your bleed, that is. So actually we're losing a bit of iron every day anyway, but even more through the bleed. If you've got menstruation, that's further going to reduce your iron levels, even if you're absorbing everything you can. And if you have any blood in the stool, any blood when wiping, you may be losing that iron-rich blood internally from your digestive system. So think about things like stomach area if the blood's a little bit darker or lower digestive system if the blood is lighter. You may then also have celiac disease, which I mentioned before can be a problem for nutrient absorption in general. And anything that's damaging the linings of the gut, that's going to impact on your iron absorption. If you're thinking, you know, what about a specific diet that could be useful? I did have a look at a, a few diets. So there's the Mediterranean diet, which may not be the best choice if you're already iron deficient, but it can be tailored for you. So the Mediterranean diet does limit red meat. It includes also several foods which are rich in phytates. So these are chemicals that can reduce iron absorption. And some examples of these phytate-rich foods are almonds, seeds from plants. There's lentils in here, beans, rice and grains. You know, so at the moment it's sounding quite vegetarian as well, isn't it? You can still follow the Mediterranean diet, but what I'd recommend doing is just being aware of those phytate-rich foods, maybe doing a Google search and printing out a list of them so that you can get more informed about it, become a little bit more literate on phytates and diets for iron. Definitely up your intake of fish and also, of course, use an iron supplement. According to Harvard University, and this makes perfect sense. The paleo diet is a suitable diet for people who have a tendency to low iron. And that's really only assuming that you're happy to eat meat. They rank also seaweed is particularly high in iron, oysters, soybeans, pumpkin seeds, uh, spinach and kidney beans, followed by beef and turkey. So I think paleo diet is a possibility as long as you're not vegan or vegetarian and you're happy to eat meat, particularly red meat. So you can see that there's actually quite a few plant-based options for iron too, if you are vegetarian or similar. And just um, know that there, there are two types of iron that you can eat. So you can get your iron from plant sources. It's called non-heme iron. It's not as easily absorbed as the other type, but and you probably have to eat more to be able to absorb it. But, you know, it, it is an option for you. And then there's the heme iron. This comes from animal sources. It's just more bioavailable, so we will tend to absorb it at higher rates. And that can be good if, if you are a bit anemic and you're really needing to build your iron levels up quite strongly and quite quickly. You still will need a supplement, though. So just to give you an idea of some um, ways you could sort of meal plan here, I would imagine that if you wanted to, if you were iron okay, your levels were okay, and you just wanted to make sure you got that 18 milligrams a day, you could wake up and you could have a fortified cereal for breakfast because they tend to be give you quite a good amount actually of iron, so fortified 
iron in a cereal. And then you could have some cooked cannelloni beans for lunch. You could mix in there quite a bit of parsley. Parsley is very rich in iron. You could make a chickpea or tofu curry for dinner. And you can mix into your food some organic beef liver or chicken liver powder. In fact, chicken liver is thought to be higher in iron than beef liver. On another day, you might wake up and have sardines on toast for breakfast. You could top it with some fresh spinach leaves. You could then have some lentil soup for lunch and some braised beef stew for your dinner. And once again, adding in your liver powders to give you extra iron there, maybe even some nutritional yeast to boost your iron levels further. And then you can finish the day off with some dark chocolate because you've been so amazing and you deserve it. And you might get a little bit of iron there too. And if you combine this sort of approach with Chinese herbal medicine, where they have that blood nourishing diet, I think you will come off a winner. If you're deficient, just remember you still need to supplement, but that's not a forever thing. Once your stores are good and they're back to normal, you can start moving to more dietary provision of iron. So in Oriental medicine, there's a theory around blood foods and blood herbs, and it adds another layer to your iron boosting toolkit. These um, are foods and herbs that actually resemble blood in many cases. They're, they're often dark and rich. Sometimes they're red. So they're resembling the very substance that you're trying to build up in your body. And remember that iron and blood, they're so intricately um, related to each other. So liver from animals, that's considered an especially good source of iron across all healing systems. And remember I mentioned before in Chinese medicine, the liver is important as a bit of a blood reservoir. It's involved in the women's cycles, getting the sea of blood ready, which is later to be released through the period. So the liver is very central as a blood organ. If you're a woman having cycles, give yourself extra nourishment, by the way. Especially if your bleeds are too light or sluggish, your blood may actually need building up. And I like to add in some gentle spices like cinnamon and ginger to help get the blood moving more freely through the uterus and the ovaries. And by the way, the normal amount of blood loss in any given cycle is about 80 mL. So if you think you're losing more than this, then you'll also be losing more iron than normal. Some of the other foods that can help to build your blood, nourish your blood, are dookie beans, black bean, kidney beans, the Chinese red date, Sisyphus, it's very good. You can make yourself a daily cup of Sisyphus tea. There's greens like watercress, kelp, leafy greens, kale, seaweed, silver beet, green chilies. I think I mentioned spinach before, sun-dried tomatoes, red chilies. So think about that red color as well there. For the meat section, definitely chicken liver. It's very high in iron, followed by beef liver. And then bone marrow can be really good and some red meat. Uh, chicken meat, white meat, not as rich, but will give you some iron. There's chicken eggs as well. Red miso. So you could make a beautiful you know, cauliflower soup and mix some red miso into that. And of course, you can use miso in lots of different dishes. There is red wine and cocoa powder, which also have a little bit of iron. And then there's cherries, longanberries, figs and dark grapes. They're the types of fruits that will give you a little bit of iron. For culinary herbs, when you're cooking, think about cooking in some basil leaves, some parsley or some coriander leaf, because all of those are thought to have higher levels of iron compared to a lot of the other culinary herbs. And it would be a miss for me as a herbalist not to give you some ideas on my favorite herbal teas for iron levels. 
My absolute favorite is nettle leaf. And when you taste it, you'll see what I mean. It really tastes like a green multivitamin. It's the best one if you're thinking of really bolstering those iron levels. Dandelion leaf tea is also really good to give you a little bit of iron. And then following on from that, herbs like ashwagandha can be great. That's with anya. Moringa can be good. Yellow dock and alfalfa can also be very good. If you're pregnant, by the way, uh, I think nettle leaf is fairly good um, in the preconception period. I don't tend to give a lot of herbal teas or a lot of herbal anythings in the first trimester. You have to be very careful. So make sure that you ask your practitioner about which teas you're wanting to drink. Make sure that you consult your healthcare professional before you start adding herbal supplements or teas or medicines into your routine. A naturopath or a herbalist like myself, we can guide you to what's going to be safe and um, efficacious as well. So next on our list is uh, talking about supplements. So hands up if this was you, your doctor told you you're, you're iron deficient, he sent you off to the pharmacy to get an iron supplement and you're standing there and you're taking in the 100 or so iron supplements that are currently available in Australia and you're feeling a little bewildered. Or your practitioner told you, go and get this one, no discussion of the form of iron that you've been prescribed or alternative dosing routines. And so you went ahead, you bought it, and you're taking it. Perhaps also not a lot of instruction on diet might have been given, apart from eating more liver. Well, years ago, this was my experience. So I'm speaking from my personal history here. And actually, I ended up taking, I think, a cheaper form of iron for a while. And I really didn't monitor it very well. This is before I knew what naturopathy was, I ended up developing a condition called hemochromatosis, which is where you end up with too much iron. And in my case, I think it was because I supplemented too long. So I can swing both ways, everybody, when it comes to iron. My number one rule with iron really is match it to the person and monitor the usage. I have learned from experience. Don't take it just because. Don't grab the cheapest one on the shelf find out which iron form and dosing regimen is going to actually work for you to safely and effectively manage your iron levels and come and see someone like me see your doctor or see a nutritionist to work out what's best for you because choosing what's right for you is going to depend on a lot of factors so your age will be one of them uh, your sex obviously if you're menstruating or not your deficiency level that will impact on the decision and some other factors as well, like gut health. Most of the iron supplements, they come in a salt form like ferrous fumarate. And that might be cheap, but it isn't absorbed as well. And it's more likely to be associated with some of the GI symptoms, the gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea and diarrhea, possibly even black stools, which can be a little bit alarming when you see it. So if you've had a reaction to an iron supplement, I'd say it probably was one of the ferrous fumarate types. The iron chelate forms like iron bisglycinate, they're a better choice. They're more absorbable, they're less likely to irritate and cause gut symptoms, and they're usually in smaller doses, which means they're less likely to set off the hepcidin brigade. I tend to use the iron bisglycinate form with my clients. Dosages, you know, they can vary, but around 120 milligrams of iron bisglycinate which ends up being equivalent to, you know, roughly 25 or so milligrams of elemental iron, something like that. In fact, the dosages in iron products, they can really vary. Just know that more is actually not better. If you can get a gentler form like the bisglycinate type, then that's going to have less of an impact on hepcidin levels. 
We will give you a lower, gentler and safer dose that has more ability to be absorbed. So, you know, you're thinking that 25 or so elemental iron, it looks a little bit low, but it's actually less likely to elevate hepcidin levels, which will ultimately inhibit the absorption of the iron. So it can be good. And remember, if you're taking an iron supplement, current research supports alternate day dosing. So to quote some of the emerging research, there was a 2017 study which was done on women taking iron supplements. They had some women taking it daily and some every other day. And they found that supplementing every second day, uh, one dose, one single dose, showed smaller increases in hepcidin. And so if you're getting smaller increases in hepcidin, you're getting more absorption of your iron occurring. So the hepcidin, that's the liver peptide protein that inhibits your iron absorption. So also note that that poor gut assimilation of nutrients means that, you know, you could be taking an oral supplement, but you may not be absorbing it as well. Just bear it in mind, particularly if you're trying for a baby and you need to get your iron levels up swiftly, or if you're trying to avoid pregnancy complications. Um, I'm no expert on intravenous iron. That's something to talk to your GP or medical practitioner about. The research does say, however, that you can quickly correct your iron status with intravenous iron. And the fact that it bypasses the gut can be useful for some people if they have gut absorption issues. But remember, the IV is not fixing the root cause. It's just a top up. So you're still going to need to work on supplementation in some form and diet as well to maintain. Just one more way that we can get iron, because we've been talking a lot about diet. And I mentioned before iron recycling. So this is the, um, the other way that we get iron in our body, apart from what we're taking in through our diet or supplements. It's a process that our bodies perform internally by going to all of the red blood cells that are winding up their lifespan of 120 day cycles and they're getting ready to die. And basically your body will release the iron that's been sitting inside those red blood cells and it will release it back into the bloodstream. So it becomes iron that we can utilize once again. Now, I wanted to give you some tips on getting the best results out of your iron supplements. So number one, just be consistent, but keep your eye on your levels. So go back, get yourself checked again in three or six months. Who knows, your iron levels could be normal at that time. And if they're not normal and they haven't picked up, then just keep going. Generally, it's thought to take around two months to restore normal hemoglobin levels and more than that if you happen to have heavy periods. You'll also get the most absorption if you take your iron on an empty stomach. Now, this varies a little bit depending on the type of iron form that you're taking. And um, I actually give an extra gentle form, so we rarely have issues like this. But definitely talk to your practitioner if you are having some adverse effects. And take a high quality vitamin C with your iron as well, because the vitamin C will help you to absorb your iron. And avoid taking any of these at the same time as your iron supplements. So things like milk, antacids, uh, raw vegetables, chocolate, coffee. So the actual level of interference with iron resorption, that's a little bit unclear. It's thought to be maybe that it's a bit overstated, but I think it's still going to help just to reduce intake of things like antacids, particularly when you think about the impact of stomach acid on, you know, keen sources of iron like meat and the role that it plays in breaking food down, that sort of thing. So in conclusion, everybody, if you think that you may be iron deficient, possibly anemic, or perhaps it's your kids or your partner, 
or you're looking for some solutions to ongoing fatigue, mental fogginess, headache, breathlessness, other typical symptoms of iron deficiency, just know that there is a solution for you out there, whether it's supplementation, whether it's looking at diet revision, maybe even intravenous iron. There are ways that you can work holistically on your iron status. And lifestyle also plays a role. So, you know, even look at your stress levels, look at whether you have enough stress coping tools to support you, like breath work and walks, uh, meditation. I find reading really relaxing. Some people love yoga. From what I've observed as a women's natural health clinician, iron deficiency requires more of a holistic approach that covers everything. So it includes the diet, it includes the herbal medicines, and it includes lifestyle too. And it can really help to have a practitioner like myself to guide you in this. And by popping some of those iron-enriching foods that I mentioned before onto your shopping list, you can be assured that you're already taking the first steps to transforming your diet into a blood-nourishing one. I really hope this information has been useful for you. Remember that it is information. I am a naturopath, but I'm not your naturopath. So always consult a health practitioner for personalized guidance and a safe and effective treatment or book in, come and see me. And keep an eye on those iron levels. Get your iron study done every three to six months. Thanks for listening. Have a beautiful day and see you in another episode of Well Woman. Hey, everybody, please know that the information, opinion and advice provided in this podcast are not intended to replace professional medical care. They are for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not always be those of the host. Thanks for listening.